John chapter 6 is where we'll be, and uh, thank you for being here on our Wednesday night Bible study prayer service, and uh, we're going to look at a very familiar story. Um, this kind of comes off of what Pastor Winston preached Mother's Day Sunday, kind of a thought similar that I'm going to leave you with here at the end of our responsibility to our children, grandchildren. Um, but John chapter 6, very familiar story of the feeding of the 5,000. And uh, verse 5 says, When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, When shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There's a lad here, which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes. What are they among so many? Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you for the update that we heard from Pastor Winston. Thank you for the doors you've opened for him and Pastor Dwight to represent our church and how you work so many things out behind the scenes that we could help these people. And God, uh, so many Christians there that are uh, having to fight for their country, that are having to risk their lives. And God, I pray you bless their families. God, continue to uh, provide uh, in the ways that you see fit. God, we thank you for this time together around your word. God, we thank you for the message that you've given us. I pray that it would stir our hearts. And God, that we would leave here encouraged. God, be with every ministry that's happening uh, over the next few days here on campus. Protect the teens as they travel uh, down to Carowinds on Saturday. God, be with the services on Sunday. We'll give you all the honor and glory for what you're going to do in Christ's name. Amen. I want to preach. You see at the top of your notes, I want to preach a message entitled, What's for Lunch? So what is for lunch? What was for lunch today? Um, in verse 5, Jesus asked Philip a very important question. I just read it, but you can see it again. It says, When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company coming unto him, he saith unto Philip, When shall we buy bread? Jesus literally was asking Philip, what's for lunch? That's what he was asking him. Like, where are we going to go buy bread? What's for lunch? One of the most important questions you answer probably on a daily basis is, what's for lunch? Pastor Allen, you understand how important this question is. There's a lot of questions I've asked you. But how many times, Pastor Allen, have I asked you, what's for lunch? A lot. If I've asked, if Pastor Rory, Brother John, Pastor Will, Brother Doug, I mean, if we say it once, how many times do we say it on a Tuesday in the office? M many, many times. What's for lunch? My six-year-old wakes up out of bed getting ready for school, and within 15 minutes of being up and trying to figure out what his world is at that moment, he asks, hey, Dad, what do I have for lunch today? He asks that. He wants me to say, oh, we got you hot lunch at school and you got Chick-fil-A. But that's not always the case. Sometimes it's a peanut butter jelly in the lunchbox. That's what's for lunch. What is for lunch? What's for lunch? Jesus asked Philip, what's for lunch? I think that even before Jesus may have even asked that question that day, there may have been a little boy that woke up and asked his mom, what's for lunch? And his mom's response probably sounded something like this. Well, 
Timmy, it's five loaves and two fishes. That's what's for lunch. And maybe his reaction could have been something like this. Oh, mom, again? I got five loaves and two fishes again? There's a really good chance that if he lived anywhere near the Sea of Galilee, his dad was probably a fisherman. Me and Brother Doug Doug talked about this in the office earlier today. And that he probably had loaves and fishes for lunch a lot. Maybe in the biblical times related to... This time, five loaves and two fishes would be like a peanut butter and jelly, right? I mean, if there is nothing in the house for lunch, we're going to have at least some peanut butter and jelly, right? We have that available. This is absolutely having nothing to do with the rest of my message. And this is totally free information. But there was a medical, I I may be wrong on this, I need to do more research, but I think it was from John Hopkins University. They did a study based upon nutrition. And they took foods and they determined whether it added minutes to your life or whether it took away minutes from your life. Okay? So they took a bacon cheeseburger. In my case, it would be bacon and a burger, no cheese. But a bacon cheeseburger takes 80 minutes off of your life. So I figure at best I got about five years left. Because <laughs> I've eaten a lot of bacon burgers in my life. But now this is what blew my mind. The same study found that a peanut butter and jelly sandwich added 30 minutes. I looked at my wife and I said, our kids are going to live forever. <laughs> I mean, what? They're going to live forever. That's all they eat. It's peanut butter and jelly. I don't know how accurate those statistics really are, but it was interesting to go through all the categories and depressing at the same time to see how the foods added and took away. But regardless of those statistics, there was a boy in this story with a lunch. And Jesus and his disciples had a problem. And I want you to think about the problem that Jesus and his disciples faced. This problem involved a bunch of people. Five, we know there was 5,000 men. We have no idea what that included, women and children. But it was also people with a great need. They were hungry. And not only was it people and people with a need, it also seemed impossible. Look at verse 7. How Philip answered Jesus, he says, not even 200 penny worth of bread would be sufficient for them. I did my best ability trying to figure out what 200 penny worth would equal in 2022. And I added a little bit for inflation and the best numbers I could come up with that would take about $50,000 to feed however many people were there. It's a lot of money. And what Philip was telling Jesus is, I don't have that in my checking account to go buy $50,000 worth of food to feed all of these people. It was an impossible situation. And what we must understand to really get the whole grasp of this familiar story, Jesus did not have to be concerned with the problem. He didn't have to. He could have just said in his disciples in another account in Mark chapter 6, his disciples literally was like, let's just send them home. 
Jesus didn't have to worry about feeding these people. He didn't have to be concerned with it. It was not his responsibility to feed these thousands of people. But Jesus was always looking for opportunities to love people and meet their needs. It was his way of life. Mark 6.34, the other passage that talks about this story. It says, And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them. Jesus wanted to feed the people because he loved them. It goes on to say in that verse that he saw them as sheep not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. He had a compassion. He loved them. And even though I've heard this story hundreds of times in my life, from a little kid at VBS all the way up of messages being preached, to this day, this morning when I read this, preparing for tonight, when I read this story again, it still amazes me how Jesus supplied the solution to the problem. It's why it's called a miracle. It's still amazing. To be honest tonight, sometimes I feel like Jesus and his disciples. Sometimes I feel like that in ministry, all I ever deal with is problems. If you've been in ministry, you may know what that feels like. And 99% of the time, these problems involve people. And most of the time, it's people with a need. And sometimes the solution to those needs seem impossible. It doesn't seem that there is enough money, enough time, enough sermons, enough services, enough counseling sessions to fix all the problems that you may be faced with throughout a day, a week, a month. And yet that's exactly how God wants us to feel. He wants us to feel like it's impossible to fix all the problems. If you just took the sample of people in this room and we could put in the bucket all the problems that our families have and that you're burdened about over this family member and that family member and situations and circumstances that you would honestly look at and you would say it is impossible, that's exactly how God wants us to feel. He wants his disciples, he wants us to be facing problems over the needs of people. And to be honest, if we're not facing problems over the needs of people, we probably need to check our compassion. Because that's really what God called us to. Jesus didn't ask Philip what's for lunch because Jesus didn't know what was going to be for lunch. Jesus asked Philip what's for lunch because he wanted his disciples to realize how impossible the situation was. He wanted them to try to figure out the solution on their own. Jesus didn't have to ask Philip what's for lunch. Jesus knew what he was going to have to do to feed all those people. But he wanted them to understand in their human mind how impossible the situation was. So when Jesus stepped in, they could understand how awesome the miracle was. See, what gives me hope When I face these problems, the wickedness of the generation, here's a big one if you're in ministry, if you've ever served, volunteered, tried to be in ministry, tried to impact people. What about this one? The disappointment of people that you've invested in. 
You ever been disappointed by someone that you spent time with and invested hours in? What about this? Questioning whether you're even making a difference. When I get to those points and I feel those, I have hope because of the words that Andrew told Jesus. It would be really good if we all would be challenged to be an Andrew. In verse 9, this is what of John chapter 6, the first five words, here's what Andrew said to Jesus. There's a lad here. That's all he said. There's a lad here. There's a child here. And when I'm discouraged by the problem, and sometimes when I feel like giving up, especially as a youth pastor, I want to be like Andrew. And I want to be like, hey, there's a lad here. There's a child here. There's a teen here. There's a young adult here. There's an adult here. And even his reaction at the end of verse 9, he says, but I don't really know what are they among so many. Like, there's a lad here, and all he has is five loaves, two fishes, and I don't really know if it's going to make much of a difference, but at least he brought them to Jesus. And sometimes that's, I feel like that's all I can do is get people to Jesus. I don't know if they're going to make much of a difference. Sometimes dealing with teenagers, like it's like, what in the world are we doing? It feels like you're beating your head against the wall sometimes when you're trying to impact a bunch of teenagers. But at least you're trying to get them to Jesus. Listen, this kid's awkward. This kid's weird that he doesn't look at you in the eye. But at least I'm getting them to Jesus. I don't know what it is among so many, but maybe you can do something with them, Jesus. See, that's my hope. Is that Jesus can use people. Jesus can use the most unlikely people. Andrew said, there's, there's a little boy here. Oh, he doesn't have much. Five loaves, two fishes. But at least Andrew brought him to Jesus. If I can just get people to Jesus, maybe they will have the solution to the problems. Maybe they'll be the solution to the problems. What I'm trying to say is that there's a good chance there's somebody here tonight and you have what Jesus needs. But you're going to have to give it to him. I want to give you three thoughts here on the outline about giving your lunch to Jesus. Number one, it's not about what you have. It's about, what, it's about who possesses it. So not, it's not about what you have, it's about who possesses it. This boy had five loaves and two fishes. And five loaves and two fishes in your hands will only ever be five loaves and two fishes. But five loaves and two fishes in the hands of Jesus is much more. One of the books that changed my life outside of the Bible as a young adult... Uh, in my college years was this book. We actually give this to our college graduates. But it's The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. And I don't say that flippantly like it changed my life. It really changed my life. It was probably one of the last straws that made me surrender to uh, preaching, to ministry. 
And there's one chapter in particular, as I'm talking about this point, it's not about what you have, but it's about who possesses it. There's a chapter in this book entitled, The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. And the story that Tozer uses in his book when he's trying to teach on this principle of the blessedness of possessing nothing is the story of Abraham and Isaac. Very familiar story. But he talks about how Abraham was promised to be the father of the Israelites, the children of Israel, many nations. And yet, he gets that promise probably around when he's 30 or 40, and then he goes 50 and 60 and 70 and 80 90. And God finally gives him a child. He, at some point in that waiting time, uh, he tries to take matters into his own hands, and that didn't work out too well. And we're st- still having issues to this day over that decision and having Ishmael. But finally, God blesses Sarah and Abraham with a son. They called his name Isaac. And can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine how much Abraham loved Isaac? You wait that long for a son, and then God finally gives you a son. Can you imagine how much love Abraham had for Isaac? And God knew that that was a problem. Even though God was going to supply the promise through Isaac and for generations to come, God understood that how much Abraham loved Isaac was a problem. And so God made this declaration to Abraham. He said, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, and take him up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. What type of insane God tells a dad to sacrifice his son? The type of God that's insane about you. That's how much he loves you. He cannot allow anything to take the place of himself in your heart. And so he put Abraham to the test. And so he, Abraham obeyed. He took Isaac. He walked Isaac up that mountain. And you know the story. You're familiar with the story. He goes to sacrifice Isaac. And God calls out. says, don't sacrifice your son. This is not Bible, but I want you to read from this book, The Pursuit of God, from this chapter how he words this, that God may have spoke to Abraham. It's all right, Abraham. I never intended that you should actually slay the lad. I only wanted to remove him from the temple of your heart, that I might reign unchallenged there. I wanted to correct the perversion that existed in your love. Now you may have the boy sounding well. Take him and go back to your tent. Now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thy only son, from me. It was never about Abraham sacrificing Isaac. That wasn't the point. God was always and will always be pursuing the heart. He was pursuing Abraham's heart. It wasn't about slaying his son. It was about how much do you truly trust me, Abraham? And this is the idea, the blessedness of possessing nothing. And that's what I'm trying to get us to understand. And it's not about what we have. It's about who possesses it. What's the difference of that story of Abraham holding Isaac's hand walking up the mountain and the difference in Abraham walking down the mountain still holding Isaac's hand? The difference is this. 
Abraham walking up the mountain holding Isaac's hand, he still possesses his son. But once he laid him on the altar and trusted God to somehow provide another way, and God provided another way, and he went back down the mountain still holding his son's hand, the difference was when he went back down the mountain, he no longer possessed him. He still had him. He still had to enjoy it. He still got to enjoy him. But he no longer possessed him. Listen to what he says. He says, I've said that Abraham possessed nothing. Yet was not this poor man rich? Everything he had owned before was still his to enjoy. Sheep, camels, herds, goods of every sort. He had also his wife and his friends. And best of all, he had his son Isaac safe by his side. He had everything. But he possessed nothing. And that's the point. Everything we have in life is a gift given from God that we are stewards of, but we are not owners. We do not possess it. I'm talking about our children. I'm talking about our money. I'm talking about our houses. I'm talking about our cars. They may be in the vernacular of America, your possession possessions, but if you understand how the economy of God works, you do not possess it. And it is a battle even in my own as a parent. When I look at my children and I look at the future and I have to remind myself, I don't possess them. They're gods. God knew when they were going to be born. God knew what the world was going to be like. This didn't catch God by surprise. I get to enjoy them. I get to steward them. But I don't possess them. And that's the point. It's not about what you have. It's about who possesses it. Give it to Jesus. He's going to take care of it way better than you ever could anyway. What you're holding on to may be exactly what Jesus needs. Number one, it's not about what you have. It's about who possesses it. Number two... Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, and this is, we'll look at this other story told. Same story, but a different book, Mark chapter 6, different perspective. You can see there it starts in about verse 35, but we'll skip there down to verse 41. The Bible says in verse 41, And we had taken the five loaves and two fishes. He looked up to heaven and blessed and break the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fishes divided he among them all. My second point here is that there will always be a breaking before the blessing. The Bible says that he took the five loaves and two fishes, the little lunch from the little lad. He possessed it. He looked up to heaven He asked his heavenly father to bless it, and then he broke it. He he breaked it. My point is that there's always going to have to be a breaking before the miracle, before the blessing. He asked his father, bless it. But the miracle only came after the breaking. The multiplying, I don't, don't you wish that it told more detail on actually how the miracle happened? 
Like how did he, how did like it, how did he keep passing out loaves and fishes from five loaves and two fishes? Like, like I want, like how did that happen? The Bible doesn't tell us, but he broke the loaves and he started handing them out. And I don't know how it all worked, but could it be possible that he kept breaking? Just hang with me. That he kept breaking and it kept getting blessed and he kept handing it out. Because there will be a breaking before the blessing. And if you have any experience in this thing called life, you understand that in this Christian walk, a lot of times if God is ever going to use you to your full potential, you have to go through a breaking. Because he can't use you full of pride and full of arrogance and full of your own plans and your own desires. Think about Jesus himself. Pastor Will preached a message. I have no idea even what the title of that message was, but I still remember you preaching on this part to the youth group. And he said this statement. He said, Jesus died in the garden long before he died on the cross. And I've probably heard that before, but when Pastor Will preached that, it rang in my soul. I understand Jesus physically died on that cross. But he died in the garden because that's where his will died. And there always has to be for the Christian, there has to be a garden moment where our will dies before we ever go get on the cross. And let's be honest, that's why a lot of people in their Christian walk, they never make it getting on the cross. They never can quote Galatians 2.20, For I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, not I, but Christ liveth in me. For this life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. They never really can say that, that they're living a crucified life, but because they never had the garden moment where they killed, crucified their will. That's what Jesus did in the garden. He died in the garden when he said, Not my will, but thine be done. And that's why God has to take us through the breaking before we get to experience the blessing because it cannot be our will, it cannot be our plans, and it cannot be our desires. It has to be all His. And until we go through the breaking, a lot of times the multiplication, the blessing, the miracle, it's never really going to come to fruition because they never have the garden moment. Really quick, number three. It's not about what you have, it's about who possesses it. The will, there will always be a breaking before the blessing. And number three, you will always leave with more than what you brought. You will always leave with more than what you brought. You know the story, but verse 42 and 43, it says, And they did eat, they did all eat and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments and of the fishes. Talking about giving your lunch, giving it over to Jesus. You always leave with more than what you brought. What did they do with the leftover baskets? I know I'm not the only one that asked that. Have you ever thought that? What did they do with the 12 leftover baskets? I don't know. We won't know. Maybe we'll think about it when we're in heaven and ask. But can we pretend for a moment uh, this is from the... NIV, the Nathan International Version. (laughs) That maybe they took the 12 baskets back home to the boy, with the boy. I don't know, maybe. Maybe not. But 
it, it wouldn't be outside the character of Jesus if he told his disciples, hey, this boy gave his lunch, five loaves and two fishes. Now I want you to take this back home. You follow him home. Where do you live? All right. You eat. There was 12 baskets for each disciple to carry back to the boy's home. Can you imagine what it was like, even if that didn't really happen, but could you imagine what it was like when he got home? I mean, what's one of the first things his mom's going to ask him? How was your lunch? And can you imagine the surprise that came to the mom's ear when he said, Hey, mom, I gave it to Jesus. Wouldn't that be the prayer of any mom and dad? And then what if they really did bring the baskets? Mom, you're not going to believe this. But I know I complained about five loaves and two fishes earlier. But now I, we have 12 basketful of loaves and fishes. The principle, whether that happened or not, the principle is true. That when you give it to Jesus, you always get back way more than you gave. That's why he says... This principle, Jesus understood how our minds would battle this, giving and surrendering, and not my will, but thy will. And he made this statement. He said, for whosoever shall save his life will actually lose it. But whosoever will lose it, will give it for my sake, you'll actually find it. You'll find purpose, you'll find meaning, you'll find joy. There's a lot of things in that story we do not know. That the Bible just doesn't tell us. But here's the thought that I couldn't get away with. I couldn't get away from. Yes, Jesus supplied this impossible need through a little boy's lunch. A little lad's. I don't believe his parents were there. I think that Jesus would have probably somehow there would have been an interaction with his parent. I don't think it would have just been the lad coming up with the five loaves, two vicious. He was probably around 9 to 12, 9 to 13, somewhere around in there. But here's the thought I could not get away from. And this is the last part of the notes that I'm going to give you in a moment. Is that Jesus, this great miracle that we, I mean, we all know about the a feeding of the 5,000. We know how many loaves there were. We know how many fishes there were. Like we just know this story inside and out because we've heard it so much. He used a little boy's lunch to feed all those people. But yet somebody had to care enough to pack the little boy's lunch. Somebody had to pack the lunch. And I could not get away from that thought is that somebody had to pack the lunch. We had Chick-fil-A box meals for a meeting with some of the young adult volunteers right before service. And I don't know if you've ever had a Chick-fil-A boxed meal before. It comes with a Chick-fil-A sandwich. Doesn't get much better than that. It comes with chips and it comes with a cookie. And this takes about uh, 30 minutes off of your life, by the way. <laughs> so I'm really... But can we just pretend for a moment? I really th- thought about bringing my, uh, one of my kids' lunch boxes, but I left the house and didn't think about it. Let's pretend like this is a lunch box, though. Okay? It's a meal box. And what we must understand 
is that sometimes packing a lunch, which thank God my wife normally packs my kids lunch, but there's sometimes I have to do it in the morning when she has to work early. And it's one of the most monotonous, underappreciated things you could ever do is pack a child's lunch. Putting a peanut butter jelly on there, grab some chips, put it in a sandwich bag, you gotta give them something healthy, throw a banana in there, and you know, gotta make sure you get an apple juice or something. I mean, it's just. And they never get excited about the peanut butter jelly, like I said before. It's just mundane, monotonous. But somebody cared enough to pack that boy's lunch. And that lunch was the exact, same, the exact thing that Jesus used to feed all those people. The five loaves and two fishes. And there's just an acrostic here for lunch that I want you to think about. The L, this is what, you have a child, you have a teen, you have a grandchild. This is what they need. Number one, they need love. Every child needs love. Number two, the you in lunch, they need you to understand. They need understanding. I struggle with that. You know, with my own kids. But they need, they need us to understand. They're learning. They're developing. They're not going to do things right all the time. They're going to mess up. They're going to go their own way. They need you to understand. They need you to understand that you've been there before. You didn't have it all figured out at one point. The end in lunch is nurture. You know what that word nurture means? It means to develop them physically, spiritually, and emotionally. To develop them. That's what the same idea when it says train up a child. Invest in them. Take time. Teach them. Love, understanding, nurture, see. Every child needs correction. They need to know what's wrong. They need to know what's right. That's tough. Take some time to do it. Take some investment to sit them down and explain why it's wrong and why this is right. And then here's the last one, the H. You know what every child needs, every teen needs for that sake? They need a hug. I'm telling you, there's something special about a mom and dad hugging their kid. You know what it is for a kid when their parent hugs them? It's protection. They feel safe. Mommy and daddy's here. But you take off five of these things that I just mentioned. You know what the reality is? We all need that lunch. <laughs> We all need somebody who would be that for us, who would love us and understand us and, you know, try to help us develop spiritually and emotionally and nurture us and even sometimes sit us down and correct us. And sometimes, let's be honest, even it doesn't matter how old you are, sometimes you need a hug. I mean, you really do. There's something, Brother Mark, there's something when you just come up and you just hug your brother. I love you, buddy. You need that. And here's my point. Somebody cared enough to pack that boy's lunch. You know why we got to be, why we need to be packing our children's lunch, teenagers' lunch. You know why we need to be doing that? Because it's going to come to a point where Jesus needs it. Jesus may need it sometime. And it's going to be the love, and it's going to be the understanding. It's going to be the correction, it's going to be the nurturing, and it's going to be the hugs that they're going to be in a place where Jesus says, hey, I can use you. And just get them to Jesus. And God can use them.
We covered a lot right there. But I hope for the rest of your life, when you see a Chick-fil-A box lunch, you think of this message.